This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to the Forest of Dean, where we are virtually on the border between England and Wales. We are in the English village of Sedbury, which sits on the eastern bank of the River Wye, facing the Welsh town of Chepstow on the other side of the river. And we're the guests here of Dean School, a secondary academy which has students from both England and Wales, aged between 11 and 18. Among Dean's alumni is the former head girl, J.K. Rowling. Perhaps, with her in mind, the school's motto is aspire together and achieve together. Seeking to aspire and achieve, if not exactly together, <laughs> our panel. Sir Graham Brady, who's in a pivotal parliamentary role as chairman of the 1922 committee, which represents Tory backbenchers, to whom, therefore, any Prime Minister, stable or unstable, listens with some care. <laughs> Thangham Debonair was elected to Parliament in 2015, serving as a shadow minister before joining the mass resignation from Jeremy Corbyn's team the following year. Last autumn, she was back in the team as party whip, at which point she promptly defied herself by voting against Labour's official policy supporting the triggering of Article 50. Nonetheless, she remains in post. Claire Fox is the founder and director of the Academy of Ideas, where she says ideas can be contested without constraint, as you'll know. She's also a regular on this channel's Moral Maze. Somewhat over 30 years ago, Matthew Paris decided he no longer wanted to be a Conservative MP. Mercifully, he turned to full-time journalism, in which role, as commentator and columnist, long embedded at the Times and the Spectator, he's widely thought to have few peers. The author of some 20 books, he's also the presenter of Great Lives here on Radio 4, our panel. And our first question for this programme of 2018, please. Uh, Good evening. Uh, Steve Dunford. Is Donald Trump's decision not to open the US Embassy a petulant snub or a blessing in disguise? He's been somewhat in the news in the last few hours. Matthew Paris. Well, you know, with Donald Trump, you either get indignant every time he says another stupid thing... Or you just shrug your shoulders and dismiss him as the complete oaf that, that he is. And on the whole, I, I just prefer to shrug my shoulders. I've got tired of being indignant about this man. And Boris Johnson has now become angry with the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, because Sadiq Khan speaks up for Londoners and, uh, and uh, Trump has been quite rude about some Londoners. And Boris Johnson has called Sadiq Khan a pompous, puffed-up popinjay. Well, if, if anyone is a pompous, puffed-up popinjay, it's, it's Boris Johnson, not Sadiq Khan. You say you get tired of being indignant. Given his most recent apparent outburst r- mm. relating to Africa and, and the, the word which has been used a lot, and it's after nine o'clock, shitholes, to describe them, do you... Not find yourself indignant at that, or do you just just say that's the oath? There are people like him. Unfortunately, one of them has become president of the United States. Uh, all, all one can do is be rather sorry that he, this man does not represent. I was at Yale for two years. It's a marvelous country, the United States, and they'll 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 get rid of him one way or the other, and the sooner the better. Sangam Debonair. 
Well, you could say it's both. Um, I, I tend to think it's the petulant part more than the blessing in disguise because I think some of the things that um, President Trump, I still find it hard to say those two words without wanting to either grimace or laugh, um, President Trump has been uh, offensive on his worst days, pretty rude on other days. He's been pretty rude about South London today, I think, sort of describing the, the new um, American embassy as in really rather pejorative terms. Um, but I'm also indignant because I was really rather looking forward to exercising my democratic right, right to protest and make my views known and also to be able to show President Trump that in this country we are capable of living in mutual respect and tolerance across races with different people of different religions and being able to disagree um, respectfully and in a democratic way rather than be rather abusive. The, the, the Foreign Secretary seemed to regard that kind of exercise of freedom as contributing towards uh, undermining or challenging UK-US relations, which she says we will not allow to happen. You know, I think US-UK relations do not depend on who is the inhabitant of Number 10 and who is the inhabitant of the White House. We share a lot. We share a language. We share a lot of common values, a system of jurisprudence. I think that relationship's going to survive President Trump being rude about us, but I think it's astonishing that the leader of the free world hasn't got a thick enough skin to be able to take a few, um, few people in the British islands saying that we want to protest against some of the things he said. He should be able to take that. Sir Graham Brady. I think Donald Trump is a very strange phenomenon because he's a kind of politician who has been born of the age of Twitter. And it is his decision to communicate directly with his core support in the United States, which got him elected. Uh, but he continues to govern in that way, and he continues to communicate in that way. And I think that's one of the reasons why very often most of what he says or communicates on Twitter comes across as being rather petulant. Um, it's a, a type of communication. But is it a blessing in disguise? I, I don't think it is. Uh, I think it's possible to dislike Donald Trump intensely, and a lot of people do. It's even possible uh, to like Donald Trump and certainly a lot of people in the United States do, and a lot of them voted for him. But the thing that we mustn't forget is that he is also the head of state of the United States of America. He's not just a prime minister. He is the elected head of state of our closest ally and a very important country. And I do think it's important that he should be able to come and visit the United Kingdom. It's important that people should be able to go and protest if they wish to as well, Thangham. But I think it's a, a sad pass that we've reached in events uh, where he feels offended and perhaps we feel a bit offended too. It's a very, very important partnership. And I agree with Thangham, this will last long beyond uh, the tenure of Donald Trump, even after Theresa May has ceased to be Prime Minister. Uh, but uh, but uh, it is a really important relationship and we should work on making it stronger and nurture it. You, you talked about he is the President of the United States, which he so evidently is. If you read what some Americans have been saying and some analysts outside have been saying, you, you might conclude that the President of the United States is, 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 is rather like a, uh, from what he said, what he's done, tweeting rest, that, that, that he, he's like, a, I don't know, a, a child with a personality disorder. Well, if he is also the President of the United States, does that worry you or not? Or do you think he's we, competent, do you think he's competent we, as a President? Well, I, I think my view on that is I'd, I'd like to wait until the end of his term uh, to judge what he's actually delivered rather than what he says. Based on what he says, 
uh, I don't take a, a particularly warm view of it. I don't think many people in this country uh, do. Uh, but I think the American people will reach a judgment at the next presidential election based on the outcomes of his presidency, uh, not on the content of his tweets. Claire Fox. Well, there's no doubt about it that Donald Trump is petulant and abusive, but my concern is, is that our reaction to President Trump is equally abusive and petulant, to be honest. I mean, the way that... Um, I mean, I know it's a kind of easy way of getting a clap to kind of make anti-Donald Trump comments, but it seems to me to be a rather lazy way of conducting politics. And I have really been struck. As soon as he got elected, in fact, there were people saying he should be banned from coming to the UK. And because I'm particularly interested in this, it reminded me of student politics, a bit like, let's no-platform Donald Trump. People still now say, we don't want those views here as though somehow, by kind of banning them, you can't engage with them. I mean, I would have thought that it was more important to have the arguments out. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I get rather nervous about our kind of petulance. You know, we don't like what the American people did. And I would say, I mean, I, I, I think, Matthew, you almost implied, you know, he doesn't represent the US, but he does. That's the point. He got elected by the American people. Well, and I, <coughs> I don't, you know, that's democracy for In you. In a way, that's... he does. Uh, the, yes. the, the great yeah. American uh, no, he... uh, journalist, H.L. Mencken, way back in about 1917, I think, said that one day democracy in this country will reach its finest flower and the people of the United States will have their heart's desire at last yeah. and a complete moron but, uh, will reach the White House. I know, I know, but, <laughs> but you see, but I think, I think that that's actually really, really, really um, a part of the abusive petulance that I disagree with. You know, why don't we just insult the American electorate some more, right? Because that's who's insulted you, in that way. Claire, do you, the, 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 the offence that clearly is taken in other countries around the world for what he has most recently allegedly said about uh, shitholes, yeah. uh, is that something something that offends you as well, or does it not offend you? Or is it that it offends you, but it should be allowed and don't get screwed up about it, I mean, or does it genuinely offend you? Exactly, it's the language of offence. I'm offended by a lot of things. Um, I, I, don't, I just don't think I should uh, allow that offence to dominate politics. I, I disagree with Donald Trump on a load of things. Um, I'm not an American voter. I'm simply making the point. And what's more is, I think, more seriously, I suppose, you see, the anti-Trump mood, both here and, in fact amongst Democrats in America is such that you can rile everybody up about how disgusting Trump is. But the truth is, is that Hillary Clinton was an inadequate candidate that was despised by many people in the Democrat Party. At the moment, the Democrats haven't got an alternative to Trump. Within the Republican Party, they haven't got an alternative to Trump either. Now, everybody's getting really excited about opera... Winfrey, um, another celebrity, as the big challenger to Donald Trump. And I find, by the way, Oprah Winfrey's pseudoscience, her kind of therapeutic interventions and so on, um, fine on, on, on American TV, the idea of her ruling the world, the idea that I, as a radical, am meant to be enthusiastic about her because she speaks nicely and in a nice therapeutic language. If that's the way we reduce politics to, then I think we're in serious problems. So for me... Trump should have been allowed to come here. We could have seen his petulance for itself. I, for one, would have been prepared to debate him and argue with him about any number of different issues. We shouldn't okay. ever be afraid of other people's ideas. Right. <laughs> to our, our large, self-selecting audience here, blessing or disguise, who thinks a blessing? Hands up, if you would, quickly. Who thinks it's a blessing that, he, that he's not coming here? Who thinks that it is a petulant snub? Would you put your hands up? 
Mm-hmm. A small, no, significant majority thinks it's a petulant snub, but quite a lot of don't knows. For the record, if you have thoughts about that, any answers will assuredly be for you, conceivably anyway. Anita Arnand will be there after the Saturday broadcast of this programme. The number to ring, 03700 100 444. The line's open at 1230. Any.answers at bbc.co.uk is the email address. You can tweet, hashtag BBCAQ, and you can follow us at BBC. Any questions? And we can go to our next, please. Rachel Stott, do you agree that the NHS is in crisis? And if so, what do you think should be done about it? Claire Fox, I'm going to start with you. Um, there's <coughs> undoubtedly a crisis at the moment. I don't think it's made up. I don't think that people are um, exaggerating uh, who work in the NHS. But I'm just anxious about this discussion because I feel as though it's been repeated endlessly and endlessly. And my concern is, is that the only answer or the route that we re- get reduced to is you should be spending more money on it or, you should be, or you're depriving the NHS of money. I actually think that one of the things that we have failed to do is to have a proper uh, start-from-scratch discussion about what the, the, the real purpose of the health service is today and the challenges that it faces with an ever-growing uh, and larger uh, population. I'm delighted that people are living into their 90s, into their 100s, something to be celebrated, but it puts up some challenges. I'm delighted that we now have ways of keeping people alive who would have died in the past, but that is going to be an expensive uh, matter. I think the way that it's become a political football between the two parties is distasteful, irritating, and anybody who dares to say, as I am about to say, maybe we should have a philosophical uh, discussion about what the health service is, how it should be organised, start from scratch is immediately, I'm often accused when I say that, people say, oh, so you are siding with the Tories and you want people to die on trolleys and you're cruel and you're heartless. And what happens is then you close down debate and people try and outdo themselves in proving how caring they are. I do think that the health service, which started off with this enormous sense of optimism and spirit, is not fit for purpose. And money is not the only solution to it. So we need a grown-up discussion about what we're going to do in this country, and nobody seems to have the courage to want to do that. So I would urge the listeners of this programme, at least, if not the politicians, uh, to start that conversation and prove to the politicians we're prepared to be grown-up enough to cope. Chair. (laughs) Chairman of the 1922 Committee. I agree with Claire. There There is a paradox here. The... NHS is doing much more than it has ever done in its history, and it's doing it better than it has ever done in its history, and yet there is also a crisis. And there is a crisis every winter, but over time, the pressures of an ageing population, a very good thing, we're all living longer than we used to, Uh, the pressures of more expensive treatments being available, also a very good thing, they can save lives that couldn't have been saved five years ago, ten or 20 years ago, that all builds. And every year, the pressures are greater, the demand gets bigger and bigger. So every government, since the creation of the NHS, uh, bar, I think, one, uh, has increased funding for the NHS. Funding has gone up massively. But it has still... to, I, it, you obviously don't want to get bogged down too much in funding, but it used to traditionally it went up by 4% a year. Since 2010, it's averaged 1% over inflation a year. So it, funding is pertinent, isn't it? it, it of, co- of, course, of course funding is pertinent, Jonathan, and uh, it would be silly to suggest otherwise. But the real problem is how do you address 
the constantly building demand on the service due to these systemic factors. Numbers of over 85-year-olds. Uh, numbers of over 85-year-olds, the cost it of the treatments. They double within 25 years it, it's, to it's 3 immense, million over 85-year-olds. It's an immense challenge, and it leads to the second part of this immense challenge, which is that it isn't just about the National Health Service, it is also about social care and the importance of treating it all in the round and recognising that there's no point in getting the NHS working brilliantly if the social care isn't there and people are stuck in beds. What, so about, ta- what about, uh, uh, Claire in. says, taking it out of party politics? Well, ab- absolutely. I'm very sympathetic uh, to the suggestion that's been made recently by Maurice Saatchi that there should be a Royal Commission set up to look into the long-term future of the NHS, what about, how it can be funded, how it can work most effectively. What, what, what about Nick Bowles, sure... your, your colleague Nick Bowles, who was well, a health, uh, uh, health I, minister, I, saying I, that there should be I, a ring-fenced I, I, I uh, health think, fund? I, I think it is really welcome that we are now... So, and I take Claire's criticism of politicians generically because I, I think politicians too often do get into this ding-dong about who's spending this little bit more or that little bit more. Uh, I think it is very encouraging now you've got some beginnings of a serious debate about these big long-term challenges, the idea of taking it out of party politics, but also ideas like Nick Bowles' suggestion uh, that you might look at a hypothecated tax. Let's, let's look at that seriously and recognise what, what really it, it, matters it, it, is having... What really matters is ensuring the NHS continues into the future, providing care free at the point of use uh, for all of us. Given that time moves on, and it's an unfortunate phrase to use, but it, as it were, pops into the mind, in the long run we're all dead, how long do you think you can uh, wait to have a commission, the years quite often the well, commission well, takes... Well, let's, let's start it now. Right um, away. I, I, I don't think it makes sense uh, to carry on as we have been uh, for decades, not engaging with, with this serious uh, debate, but allowing it to be a matter of party politics uh, to and fro uh, every year. Are you happy to take it out of party politics, Stan Debonair? Um, Well, when we talk about taking things out of party politics, what we would end up doing if we removed it from politics altogether was remove the democratic accountability. And that is important. Also, there's, I think, a mistaken assumption in there that politicians take all the decisions and health health workers and academics and policymakers of other sorts aren't involved. And, of course, that's not true. They are. But I think that, uh, in answer to your question, Rachel, is the NHS in crisis? Yes. I think anyone that's using it, works in it, or has come into contact with it knows that it is and if so what should be done about it well part of the reason why the NHS is in crisis is two things which were entirely predictable one is called winter it follows autumn every year everybody knows it and it's time the Secretary of State for Health bought a calendar that pointed this out to him and just adding the words and social care onto his title which happened earlier this week in case you missed it doesn't mean that we've integrated health and social care that is a problem when I talk to the hospital CEOs in my constituency that's one of the things they tell me but it isn't the only thing money is a factor it isn't the only factor and i don't know any health professional who says it's the only factor but it does matter can you imagine ring fencing as nick bowles suggested it's had quite a lot of follow-up can you imagine ring fencing the money that goes into the nhs 
separate it from how other taxes are used so that you can then say to people, this is how much it costs, are you ready to spend more for this if that more money is required? I think that we do need to be, as a country, willing to work out what that sum looks like, whether or not it's actually hypothecated in the sense that you can see on your tax form this is how much you're spending on the health service. I'm not sure whether that's the most appropriate way of doing it. But I do think we need to be willing, as a country, to say it's a great problem to have. It's fantastic that somebody who has cancer now has a better chance of survival than they will have done 20 years ago, but that that will have a cost. There will be things that then follow on from that, like particular physical impairments that may result, post-operative care, the risk of secondary cancer, all those things matter. And it's good that we've got that problem. We're all delighted that more people than ever are living healthier, longer lives, but we need to work out where the responsibility lies, not just for paying for it, but how we manage our health care as citizens and as the health service. Masses of tweets coming on this. How can the NHS be anything other than political? It's about investment, ownership and pay. What's the point of a royal commission when we don't know the government will ignore any part of its findings they don't like? That's respectively in What's That Sound and Steve Brooks. Um, and then make new migrants pay insurance for five years. This should have been the case anyway. And it's pretty much impossible for something funded by taxpayers not to be a political football. Matthew. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, the moment something is funded by taxpayers, it does become a political football. But n no, Fangham, I, I, I don't think that taking things out of the hands of politicians with a royal commission to make recommendations is, un, uh, is, is in any sense contrary to the democratic spirit of the NHS. And I, I think that politicians are involved too much on a daily basis. But I do think it's a crisis. I think 50,000 operations cancelled is a crisis. The, there's no doubt that the NHS's funds are being squeezed, and I think we have to accept that we can't carry on simply bunging a few billion more, which is what will happen within the next few weeks. The Secretary of State will bung a few billion more at the NHS, and it won't solve the problem. It'll just stop people complaining for a little while, and then we'll go back to what we ought to be thinking about, which is how do we reorganise the NHS? How do we get, perhaps people who use the NHS to pay. I wouldn't mind paying £25 to visit a doctor. I can, I can afford it. All these things, you may agree, you may disagree, but politicians are never going to make proposals like this, and that's why I do think a Royal Commission would be a good idea and might take the politicians off the hook. Matthew, for the last 20, 30 years on this programme, hmm. as you run into an election, people talk about the NHS and people talk about... We've got to spend more. Mm. And audiences, with great respect to all audiences, generally applaud that. If you then say, and would you be prepared to pay more to an audience in any questions, people tend to say yes. No politician puts paying more, i.e. another pound on standard income tax, at an election... Why? Well, the Liberal Democrats did, well, and, and look, look where it got them. It, it didn't help them at all. And I'm completely against ring-fencing. Ring-fencing is a really cheating way out of a problem. If you ring-fence health, then why don't you ring-fence education? Shouldn't defence be ring-fenced? Shouldn't the police be ring-fenced? Every time you ring-fence another department, then whenever the government needs to save the money, cuts go on all the other government departments. It's not the answer. Any answers may be, as it were, the answer I need to Ireland again, 03700 100 444. And the lines are always busy, so do get in early, 12.30, they open. To our next, please. Nick Thompson. Who benefits more from a second Brexit referendum, <laughs> Leavers or Remainers? Um, 
there are those who want a second referendum, joined apparently, at least to some degree, by Nigel Farage most recently. Um, Thangam Debonair, who gains most or would gain most? I, I, I want to start by saying, Nick, I, I don't know about you, but I found it that is a crazy tipsy-topsy world we're living in when Nigel Farage is actually the person saying we need a second referendum. Now, he has, I think, slightly rode back from that into saying that he's accepting it might happen. I'm not quite sure how it would happen. Uh, I think to, uh, to, to, to answer the question about who would benefit more... I, you know, I'm not convinced that we'd get a different result, and I say that as a Remainer. I campaigned for Remain. I represent a constituency that voted four out of five to Remain, and when I speak to my constituents, when I poll my constituents, I still get exactly the same result every time. Four out of five of my constituents, when they contact me, say to me really clearly they'd like to remain in the EU. But you know what? Not the one out of five that voted Leave, or the four out of five that voted Remain, I don't think any of them voted for where we are now, which is an absolutely chaotic mess of a Brexit with no clear plan. <laughs> and, and, I, and I can... And I can witness to that plan, which was, you know, until very recently, there were some secret documents knocking around that the Secretary of State, David Davis, referred to. Were they impact assessments? Were they not impact assessments? And event we weren't allowed to see them, even though I am a democratically elected representative of the people, and this, this referendum was supposed to be about sovereignty. And when I went to see them, we were eventually allowed to see them. We had to sign a ridiculous piece of paper promising that we wouldn't tell anyone what was in them. I was handed two lever arch files. That was it. They weren't impact assessments. And when I left that room I was allowed to say what wasn't in them and I checked and it was easy to say what wasn't in them because what wasn't in them was a plan <laughs> and, 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 and they, they were then published anyway the following week it was extraordinary it's actually although it's funny in some ways and I did laugh it's also devastatingly sad for the jobs for the workers rights for the environmental protections which we currently enjoy from being part of Europe and if we are to leave and I may though I am a, I'm a remainer till I die if reluctantly I have to accept that we're leaving we need a better plan than this because there isn't one at the moment <laughs> Graham Brady, you asked who would benefit more if there were one, Leavers or Remainers? I think the answer is neither. I don't think anybody would gain from a second referendum. Uh, I voted Leave, I campaigned to Leave, I'm optimistic about our future as an independent country outside the European Union, but with a close friendship and a good trading relationship with it. So I don't regret that uh, for a moment. But clearly, in these circumstances, there is an element of uncertainty, and that is damaging. If you want to extend that period of uncertainty, there is no better way than to have another referendum, to reopen the whole question, to have another campaign. And that's even before you get into the kind of Scottish neverendum uh, point. Once we've had a second referendum, if it didn't endorse the first, when do you have the third referendum or the fourth referendum? We've got to accept, as a country, we made a decision... It was the biggest democratic expression this country has ever seen. More people voting for a single thing than has ever happened before. Uh, and we have to get on with it. We have to deliver it. Thangam might think that it's chaotic. We will get there. We will deliver for this country. And we will do a good job uh, for Europe as well. But, Graham, but, 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 but the other reason that I don't think anybody would gain from it is that I think referendums themselves are very divisive. And I think it is undoubtedly true that British politics and public life has suffered 
from the experience well, it was of, our party of, that of, called of, of the referendum. <laughs> uh, and, well, and I confess, I've been, I've been shocked by yeah. the extent of unpleasantness uh, in politics since. And but, but, I, don't, I don't want to see British politics or public life further damaged. Is there way. no level of public dissatisfaction with where Bre Brexit is going? And I agree with you, we haven't reached that yet. But would there be no level of public dissatisfaction and public demand that they be given the question a second time uh, that, that, that would persuade Matthew, you? Matthew, I, I, th I think it would be a really dangerous thing to do. I think it would be dangerous uh, because it would make a good outcome of Brexit. So if the polls were saying 90% it, it, Because, because it would make a good outcome... Uh, much less likely. Uh, I also think uh, it would be dangerous because if it were to overturn the result, then I think British politics would become impossible and I think the country might become ungovernable. Uh, I don't think it's about uh, a percentage... So that's a that very, that's a very uh, big claim. If, there were, if the result was overturned in a second referendum, the country you fear would become ungovernable? I, I, I don't think you can run a country on the basis you have an exceptional referendum. Uh, it makes a decision with the biggest popular vote ever in our history, and then you say, let's do it again, and but, let's carry on Graham, doing it. Graham, we've already done it again. There was a referendum in the 70s that took us in. No, no, This no, is no, already no. Well, revoking hang, the hang previous it, it didn't. one. It didn't. The, it referendum, the, in the, the referendum in the 70s... The referendum in the 70s wasn't and on whether to go people, in or not. It was people, on whether to remain in and having, people are allowed having, to having change already their minds. joined. Uh, people are allowed to change their minds, and people are changing their minds as they see I, I, the I, havoc and the damage that I, I is think, being I think unleashed. the polling evidence suggests that most people... Uh, are of the view that we need to get on with it and deliver to finalise the so, outcome. Insofar, so so just country. as you mentioned, insofar uh, as you can trust the recent polls, I think an objective assessment would say that there has been a significant but not a huge shift in favour of Remain. At the same time, a majority do not favour the idea of a second referendum at the moment. You may find the face of it slightly contradictory, but that's what the I polls say. Matthew, well, finish off, make your, your own well, principle which, point. which is why I, I, I wouldn't favour a second referendum now because I don't think there is a huge popular demand for a second referendum. And a, a nation has a democratic right to self-harm if it wants to, and that, that, is, <laughs> that, that, is, that is what Brexit is going to do. But... If there is to be a referendum, it must come as a result of a, a, a real public appetite, a real public demand for it. That day may come. I hope it will come. I hope people will want a, a second referendum, and I hope the referendum will reverse the first one. But were the political classes and the media classes, of which I'm part, to seem to push a second referendum on people now, I think that would look insulting to the, the people who voted in the first referendum. So until Britain really wants a second referendum, I don't think we should have one, but I really hope that that happens. Who would benefit, Claire Fox, if there were one? Uh, well, uh, it's more that democracy would lose terribly. I mean, I, that's why, you know, what we, we do have to go beyond whether you voted leave or remain. If there was a second referendum, it would be an insult to the popular sovereignty of this country. Why? We were told, because we were told in good faith that we were mobilised, in fact, because there was a rather little appetite for this referendum when it was called. There was some concern that no-one was going to vote. We were mobilised. We were told to go out and vote. And the problem was we voted the wrong way, as far as the establishment were concerned. And they're furious with us. I can see all that. But this was a democratic vote, and people voted in good faith. I know that the kind of... Argument is now put that people were so stupid they couldn't work it out, they were low information, they didn't understand what they were doing. But actually, 
I don't believe that. I think that's just insulting the, uh, the population. I think that's what we voted for. And many people who voted Remain um, uh, understand that. It's not a straightforward leave Remain, by the way. Everybody who voted Remain did not want a second referendum. Many people who voted Remain are reconciled to the outcome of the referendum. But there is a hardcore, and I do agree it's kind of quite divisive, who just will not have it. And even though I can see that the particular government that we have at the moment is not showing its competence in relation, um, you know, and I say that, not showing its competence, if anything, being incompetent in its negotiations, they're the detail of it. This was a hugely important thing that we decided to do. Claire. And we should try and do it well. Claire, Claire, given that... If, if, uh, take, take Matthew's hypothesis. If there were a very great change, and if that was reflected by constituents through their MPs, and therefore a second referendum was held, would that not be a reflection of a shifted popular mood from the popular but, mood but that defined it in the, was defined in the first that, place? That's, uh, you see, I can understand that. And, and well, there's, there's a number of things. People keep saying to me, oh, look at the polls. We're winning now, so we're meant to look at a poll that suddenly... I mean, I'm meant to believe no, that the polls. Wasn't, that wasn't what I mooted. No, I know, I'm just saying, how are we well, going to know? Come to what I mooted. Yeah, yeah, but I'm saying, how are we going to know? I'm saying that a lot of people... When you say, if you voted in an election, unless the uh, election was only on whether we stay in the EU or not, in which case you wouldn't necessarily know. See, I, it's not that no, I, I think... I, I, sorry, sorry I to interrupt you. The, Claire, Claire, I'm just saying... I'm, it's a ref, I'm, we're talking about a referendum. No, let, me saying, put, let me put it to, to, to Graham. No, I, I want to answer your question. Can I... Okay, yeah, let, please let do. Let me clarify. Please do. Because I think it is entirely appropriate that people can change their minds. But I think we have to leave the EU. And if I, for example, believed in the EU, what I would do is I would be building a campaign now, not to thwart the democratic will of the referendum, but to build up active support for rejoining the European Union. That's a perfectly legitimate democratic thing to do, but nobody wants to do that. What they want to do is to thwart leaving the EU. They'll do anything. So then you have even people in the Lords, like Lord Adonis, saying things like, what can we do to stop it, slow it down, fudge it, and all that. Unelected Lords trying to stop what we voted for. No one. Anyone who is a Democrat should be worried about those people who are trying to stop this being... Uh, brought to fruition. Nobody... And then, if we don't like it, we can vote to go back in. Nobody is suggesting that we should change our minds unless there is a strong public demand to change our minds. No-one is suggesting that we should go against the will of the people. Some of us are suggesting that should the will of the people change, then we might get a second look at the decision that we made. Well, I think what I, I would like is, is for the government to stand by the fact that Parliament, the sovereign Parliament that this referendum was supposed to be at least partly about, made a decision before Christmas to give Parliament a meaningful vote on the final deal. And that should be truly meaningful. That means it should have a full range of options that MPs should be allowed to scrutinise, debate and vote on. And I am seriously worried that... Over over the next week, which is when the EU withdrawal bill comes back to the Commons, that the government will try and knock it out, and I really hope they don't. We've, we've got um, lots of uh, <laughs> tweets again, um, including, do these morons know how stupid they sound when they say holding a sec- second democratic vote means democracy loses? Could we please ask another, have a referendum on whether or not to have a second referendum? <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, finally, on this... Um, uh, uh, Someone asks, um, uh, gives the answer to the question as put, which is Nigel Farage benefits as it gives him more publicity. (laughs) (laughs) 
once more any answers, because it's early in the season, it's easy to forget, even though it's used for all sorts of programmes. 03 700 100 4442, our next, please. Andrew Calloway, in the light of comments by a French actress this week about a witch hunt of men, at what, which, at what point does flirting become abuse? This was Catherine Deneuve, no less, and a hundred other French high-profile women. A very brief extract from, from their open letter. Men have been punished summarily, forced out of their jobs, and all they did was to touch someone's knee or try to steal a kiss. Rape is a crime, but trying to seduce someone, even persistently or clumsily, is not. And nor is men being gentlemanly a chauvinistic attack. Graham Brady. Yeah, I think men should be gentlemanly. We should uh, try to treat everybody with courtesy and respect. But I think we all know as well that this has always been a minefield, and I think it's a brave person amongst us who would say that we never got it wrong or misinterpreted uh, a signal. So I, I just think I feel very sorry now for people of my children's generation who I think are in a world where it's become even more difficult and where uh, this is now becoming a kind of a science, that uh, you're meant to have had a, a consent form signed before you try to kiss somebody, uh, or you're meant to have established exactly what the uh, parameters of a first date are going to be before it happens. So I, I think there is a need for courtesy, for respect, for civility, for people to treat others as they should be treated. Uh, but I also think there's a real danger at the moment that things can go too far. And I suspect that Catherine Deneuve is speaking not just for a very large number of French women and men, but probably for quite a large number of women and men in this country and across the world as well, in just saying, <laughs> please, let's be a little bit careful about this and remember that we're all human beings and uh, we need to try to, to get along. Does she, as it were, speak for you, Thangham? Um, no, she doesn't. Um, I think that the phrase witch hunt of men is problematic in lots of ways, but actually to address the core of the question, which is about sexual harassment, sexual harassment is about an abuse of power, and it's, it's about somebody deciding that their right to say, touch, um, flirt with another person goes beyond the other person's right to say, I don't want that, or to be very clear that it's making them uncomfortable. Consent is important, and making light of it by saying we, should, we, you know, we don't want to have consent forms before a date isn't particularly helpful. Consent should mean meaningful consent. And when I, when I was, before I was an MP, I used to do uh, work on domestic violence. I used to work with men in particular who'd been abusive to their partners. And one of the things we had to teach them was the difference between being friendly, being flirtatious, and being disrespectful and abusive. And there are lines which should not be crossed. And, and are they, in your mind, lines that are clear? Can you, can you tell when someone, or should one be able to tell quite simply, whether someone is flirting on the one hand or being abusive on the other? Yes. Flirting is where two people are enjoying something, and I don't see that in my nephews and nieces' um, generation. I see them flirting, having fun, enjoying each other's company, and still also knowing what is abusive and what is controlling. And I think it is important. I also think it's important that we give young people the opportunity to learn more about that, and that's why I think it's great um, that the Labour Party's campaigned for compulsory sex and relationships education in schools. I think it's great that in the course of the Children's Social Work Bill going through Parliament last year, the government agreed with this, and I okay. wish they'd hurry up and get on with it. Because we actually have a lot of people who are really good at doing these things. They're called young people themselves who want that information, who come to me and say, I do actually want to be able to work out those sorts of things. Uh, Steve Brooks, I think you would like what he says. Flirting becomes abuse when the flirter holds the flirtee's 
future in his hands. Definitely. Um, Claire Fox. <coughs> when um, Catherine Deneuve and those 100 French feminists wrote that, I absolutely cheered. It was a great experience to at last have women who were not going along with what has actually become quite a prescriptive orthodoxy in relation to the Me Too hashtag and the kind of sexual harassment thing. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because what they emphasised, what Catherine Deneuve emphasised, was that women have agency and that actually they're not fragile victims and that many of the descriptions that have emerged recently from the sexual harassment discussion has made out that kind of women are kind of passive, need to be protected all the time. That um, and that, if you are somebody who's from, a, you know, uh, my, like myself, uh, a women's liberation background, you know, there's nothing more insulting than to be constantly treated as though you're kind of almost like some kind of Victorian maiden who kind of, uh, you know, is frightened of kind of any sexual advances at all. There's a hugely important. Uh, cultural shift that could happen in relation to Me Too because sexual abuse and sexual harassment are entirely unacceptable. And, of course, of course, that is something that we would want to stamp on. But it's what's also interesting is that um, uh, Catherine Deneuve and also Katie Ruffey, a fantastic feminist in America who's also come out and made some of these points, they've been assaulted, by the way, accused of internalised misogyny by some people, by other feminists accused of sounding like they're lobotomised by another feminist. In other words, if you don't go along with the prescriptive feminist line on this, you are shut down. Apparently, we all have to cheer when uh, very famous actresses wear beautiful designer black dresses, nod along and say, yes, you are our suffragette heroes and heroines. No, they're not. That's playing politics. Life is more complicated, and we women can cope with not having active consent or constantly being uh, active consent in the way that it's now been prescriptively uh, said to us. Because sexual freedom is more complicated than that. But it was one of our great gains, and we are going back uh, by millions of uh, hundreds of years if we end up turning women into fragile victims as a consequence of what should be we, this, a step forward. This is, uh, Claire, you, you're missing a lot of the point of this, which is a lot of the... You say that this is making women into fragile victims. Actually, there are a lot of very strong women who also experience sexual harassment. And when they say, no, this is not what I want, and someone carries on and carries on yeah. and carries on, particularly if they're in a position of power over them, that is harassment. That's called and sexual we do harassment. Have, and we do need protection under the I law. Know, okay. but you will know, make us victims. But you will know that the descriptions of what has happen to women are so varied that you've got extreme abuse put into the same category as sexual comments even, uh, flirtatious uh, over-flirtation. There's all sorts of things, you know, hands on knee. I don't want to go through it all. The audience will know what I'm... I don't want my boss's just... hand on my knee. Uh, well, I you... don't. I yes. definitely don't. Fine. I'm pretty sure you nobody then, should. Then you, then you can remove it. What you don't want is necessarily... Leave code my of... boss. Excuse me. What you don't want is a code of conduct. And what I'm saying is... is no, actually, this is an I... example. I this wish is... I didn't need one, but I unfortunately we seem to. Okay. I know, but I'm saying this is a... This is a place where... My final point is... This is, this is very important. There is a closing down of the discussion on this issue and women who will not go along with a very prescriptive view of the Me Too circumstance are told that they're selling okay. out the sisterhood. Okay. That is actually the real betrayal of the sisterhood and okay. we've got to be careful of it. I must you pause you there. Um, <laughs> at what point does flirting become abuse, is the question, Matthew? Uh, in answer to that actual question, well, the late Alan Clark did once say... How do I know if a pass has been unwanted until I've made it? 
And there must be millions of, of men l like me in, in Britain who have often felt genuinely uncertain about how something would be received and, and, and also worried about offending somebody. I think the Me Too business has gone too far, but I think it's probably a good thing. Pendulum swing, and for a very long time, women have had to put up with behaviour that we can now see looking back on it was completely, completely unacceptable. And if the pendulum has swung a bit the other way and given an awful lot of men a bit of a fright, and if perhaps it has caused a little bit too much concern in the opposite direction, well, that's what pendulums do. They don't stop in the middle in the absolutely right position. They swing one way or the other. And it was time, I think, that, that men all, all over the world asked themselves about their behaviour... And if that's been the result of this, then even if it has gone a bit too far, I think it's for the better. And we can squeeze in one more. Audrey Tullett, who would the panel pick as their great life? This may or may not be a reference to a certain radio programme presented by one of our panellists. Who would you pick as your great life? And please don't choose your party leader. Graham Brady. <laughs> not, um, not anything wrong with the party leader, it's just kind of, like, boring. No, well, I hope it needn't be boring, but I won't, I won't make that choice. Um, I, I would like to choose um, Thomas Wentworth, the uh, first Earl of Stratford, who was Charles I's uh, first minister, did a great job for him, uh, would have saved his head if it wasn't for Charles letting him down. And Thank you. giving up his head instead. Claire Fox. Hannah Arendt, the most fantastic um, and important female philosopher, uh, often demonised, actually, of all the things in the world that she didn't do was conform. She, she thought and said what she believed in, fantastically important on education, for those of you who are interested. Any young women, any young men should read her and try and understand her. She smoked too much. She, she never, ever, ever said what she thought the audience uh, wanted to hear. She didn't pander to anyone. In other words, she Claire. treated people with respect. Love her. Wish I could be her. <laughs> Thank you, Devon Mayor. Um, I'm struggling because I can think of so many. Um, I, it, it may sound... Uh, it's an easy choice, but I'm going to go with Marie Curie because I think that she was a pioneering women scientist and I would love there to be more women scientists. The fact that she put her own life at risk in the cause of science is something I don't advise everyone to do, but I am really pr pleased that she did, and I think it's great that a woman scientist actually got credit for her work. Briefly, before you give your answer, Matthew. Um, you've had three applicants for the programme. Do they all get a chance? Oh, they all have a very good chance. Three very strong cases. We've done Marie Curie, in fact. M mine, I'm not sure whether we have done, not while I've presented the programme. It, it would be William Wilberforce. OK, that sounds obvious. But slavery was the most appalling, yeah. unacceptable thing. How we ever thought it could be right, I don't know. And it took a huge amount of courage, and not just courage, but a huge amount of work for William Wilberforce to change the mind of a nation. And I think that's a very great thing indeed. So anyone who wants... <laughs> who wants to be a contributor to Great Lives, write to Matthew and suggest none other than William Wilberforce. Um, uh, that's all we've got time for, unfortunately, this week. Next week we're going to be in Wales, across the border, some way across the border, in Aberystwyth at the Ceredigion Museum. And from here, meanwhile, in England, in Gloucestershire, from the Wydean School, goodbye.
I hope you enjoyed any questions this week. To find out more about the programme or how you can get us to come to your area, then go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions. This is the BBC.